Hello, welcome to the Performance Cycling Podcast. I'm Jason Hammond. I'm here with Todd Norwood. Hello, welcome back. So today we're going to jump in and talk a little bit about hip mobility and how it influences your position and potentially performance on the bike, mainly because I see a lot of riders that have some hip mobility restrictions, and I think it's a super important area to address one you know, your hip muscles are some of those powerful muscles you have to drive the bike forward and we've talked about this on previous episodes but it's also some of the muscles that are tight from cycling and i think of course there's a balance between being a great cyclist and being a healthy human being and some some of the things that may make you a good cyclist may not necessarily be good for your long-term health so there may be some balance there for us to think about when it comes to hip mobility Sure. So this is kind of your topic, so I don't want to steal the thunder, but um, starting super high level, uh, when we talk about the hips in general, we can talk about the, the ways that your hips can move. Yeah. And in cycling, your hips really only move in one plane. So that's uh, what flexion and extension. Yeah, as a sagittal plane movement, flexion and extension. So your hip just in general is a ball and socket joint. So it has a ton of freedom for movement. So you have flexion and extension. That's what we think about in cycling. Flexion is closing of the front of the hip, like knee to chest. Right, bringing knee to chest and extension, and extension is the thoughts. opposite. Yep. Exactly. And then we have uh, abduction and adduction. So, so you say abduction and adduction as opposed to abduction and adduction because if you say it's it quickly confusing enough, yeah. and hard. That's something that came from one of my anatomy instructors, and I just grabbed onto it because it made it that much easier. But I would say AB and AD are just as hard to distinguish between as ab, ad and ab ad. and ad. Yeah, fair, fair enough. But uh, okay, so abduction is like abducting so it's taking it's going away from the body right moving away from the midline and that is um basically when you kick your leg out to the side correct um so like lifting the outside of your foot away from you Mm -hmm. and then adduction is the opposite right and then you have internal external rotation which are rotary motions at the hip and they're similar concept to ab and adduction where it's internal rotation is thinking about now, if you looked at the knee, it's the knee looking head on is now rotating towards the midline of the body as internal rotation. And the knee rotating away from the midline of the body is external rotation. Yep. And so I, if you, another way to think about it is um, external rotation is um, the foot oh, the coming foot. inward. Uh, well, it depends on how you're foot's positioned if you're if you're like so if, if you're, you're sitting like, like uh, if in, you're in sitting chair, 90 degrees correct yeah correct if you're sitting in a chair and you bring your foot inward and up correct that That's is external, external rotation, rotation. Um, because the femur is is, is rotating. externally rotating yeah. right and if you're standing relatively i think may easier reference the foot if you're standing it's towing out is external yeah. rotation towing in is internal rotation yep That's and um so the muscles that control internal and external rotation um you have specific external rotators at mm-hmm. the bottom of your butt, and but you don't have specific internal rotators. Is that correct? You sort of use your adductors and your hip flexors, and yeah, I mean, it's, so it's all about the arrangement of the muscles relative to the joint, and sometimes even just the dynamic motion of the joint changes what the muscles will do. But just from a biomechanical standpoint, if a muscle is anterior in front of the hip joint. When it contracts, it's going to flex the hip. If it's posterior, like the glutes are, it's going to extend the hip. If it's lateral to the axis of rotation, it's going mm-hmm. to be a, either an abductor or an external rotator. 
and vice versa for an adductor or intramural rotator. So any one muscle, depending on if it's, you know, aligned directly in one plane, it's going to do one motion. If it's, you know, has, uh, it's across multiple planes, then it can have multiple actions, but typically any given muscle has one primary action, mm-hmm. right? So, and then uh, it like uh, glute max is primarily going to be an extensor of the hip. However, it can externally rotate the hip because of its positioning. Sure. And the weird thing with uh, all this biomechanical stuff is if you aren't doing exactly flexion, like say you're, you're bringing your knee up and out, then you have this combination of muscle firing and some can't, you know, like this one muscle can't fire maximally or else your knee won't, you know, still move outward, right. but it can still contribute some like, uh, like a internal hip flexor. If you're, if you're bringing your knee to chest, it's going to engage, but it can't engage too much or else you won't be able to kick your knee out uh, right. outwards. So, yep. um, our brains are actually really good. This is something you might know more about like childhood development. This is a big part of learning. Um, it's all subconscious, but our brain learns how to fire the muscles really well together so that you get the actual movement you want and understanding that it's sort of like a symphony of firing of different muscles to create this exact motion. Yeah, there's a lot that's going on under the hood, right? It's way beyond the simple biomechanics of, well, look, this muscle's positioned here, and when it shortens, it should do this one thing. Right, yes, and then there's all these other muscles that are interacting with it, and your brain is sending a series of signals that, as you say, is synchronized in such a way to create the desired motion. So, you know, I, I think the best example we talk about childhood development is watching a child learn how to walk because the feedback's so immediate and you, you walk or you fail and you learn from the failures like, well, that didn't quite work. So now different motor pattern needs to be employed. Okay. That one was okay, but it was a little wobbly now different motor pattern. And there, there's some other things happening there too, but just from a motor standpoint, we do this too, as we grow and practice our sports or, you know, you practice playing the piano and you, you learn the motor pattern that goes with the, the music notes and you put it all together. You read the sheet music and now you have the motor pattern from your fingers and your arms to make the music. And so that's the same of a sports movement, whether it's a, a tennis serve or a pedal stroke, any of those things are a, sure. a combination of the biomechanical piece and the overlay of this really complicated neural system that's really driving it and making making the magic happen and we talked about this a little bit in the pedal stroke uh, episode we did a few episodes ago you have um you can do the range of motion or the motor pattern but there's a difference between doing it and having it being like really fully reinforced and being able to move through that motion very fluidly and that's like something that someone who has worked on their pedal stroke a lot can really fluidly move through that as opposed to just like yeah, my leg moved in a circle. There's a difference between that and someone who's really practiced the pedal stroke. Right. And I think that's part of that is how that power is applied. Your leg is attached to a pedal. It's attached to a crank arm that goes in a circle. Your leg's moving in a circle, more like whether you want it or not. But how is that power applied? Is it applied smoothly throughout that circle? Is it efficient? Is it powerful? Or is it your legs just moving in a circle and power sort of happens haphazardly throughout that circle? Yeah, and so this uh, episode is on hip mobility. So uh, do you want to talk a little bit about the difference between mobility and flexibility? I have my own definition, although I'm not a physical therapist. Sure. I mean, I think globally, if you sort of step outside of physical therapy or other other areas, then 
I think those two terms and to the layperson are more or less synonymous. When you talk about a movement, it's, oh, you know, is your hip flexible? Is your hip mobile? You may get, you know, may, people may say, okay, yeah, those, those sound the same. I mean, I, I would say arguably they are. I would say if you're very specific in a physical therapy context, like if I was talking to a colleague, hip flexibility would be more likely to indicate muscular. Do you, do you, are your hamstrings flexible? Would something we'd be attaching more to a muscle as opposed to hip mobility is something we'd attach more to the, the joint structures, like the, the hip joint, that ball and socket has good mobility. It moves through the range of motion that we expect it to. So I think those, and now those two things overlap. You're, you can imagine a world if you like to a cadaver or something, and you say, okay, well, let me take all the muscles off and let me move the hip joint. Oh, hey, that, that moves fantastic. Let me put the muscles back on. Oh, well, these muscles are stiff. There's no flexibility. And therefore, it appears that the hip isn't mobile. And there's, there's ways, and we can talk about it a little bit uh, today, that you can sort of separate the two from a, a diagnostic standpoint, understand, well, is this the muscle that's restricting the range of motion here? Or is this the joint that's restricting the range of motion? Um, you can make arguments. There's other, other pieces to like, well, maybe it's protective. Maybe there's pain. And therefore, there's some sort of a pain um, input or pain output that's causing the body to not move through this range of motion. I always thought of uh, mobility and flexibility as um, can you get your foot up on this box mm -hmm. and can you stand up on that foot? Okay. And so flexibility is, well, I can get my leg up there, but mm -hmm. mobility is I can engage and use I can do, the It's joint. functional. Yeah. And uh, th this is important for cycling because maybe you can get your knee all the way to your face, mm -hmm. but if you can't stand up on that leg... If you're put in that position on the bike, you can't generate the power you need. This is why time trialists, you know, generally have lower um, threshold power. You have lower threshold power on a TT bike than you do on a road bike. And it's because you're, you know, you're crunching down and your muscles aren't their optimal length. And um, having good mobility is being able to produce power at these extreme ends of the muscle. Yeah. Being able to be functional. Uh, the, like, the flexibility is actually useful for you as opposed to for show, for lack of a better term. Right. Like I would say a gymnast has tremendous mobility by your definition, right? They're, yep. they're able to produce an incredible amount of power in these positions where their muscles are stretched or, you know, at towards their end of range of motion. And I, maybe we've said this before, but, um, there are a few gymnasts that we know who are now cyclists who are um, very good cyclists. And, um, I think you speculated there might be a connection there between the, the mobility of a gymnast. Yeah, just the, the ability to get into that position and, and still okay. produce some power there. So, okay, so why why does this matter for cyclists, right? I think that's the part we need to get to. And then if your mobility and flexibility aren't adequate or maybe are subpar, what might you want to do about it to improve upon that? So you can at least check the box and say, well, this isn't a primary limiter at this point in time. So I think one of the things that's maybe underappreciated in cycling, and I'm pretty sure I've said this before, is the importance of having good flexibility and mobility uh, throughout your, your body. Because if you want to get into a time trial position, you want to get into aggressive position, uh, even descending on a mountain bike, the ideal position is really pretty low uh, and it's a big hinge at the hip. And if you don't have the mobility there, you can't get into that ideal position. So if you just look at your position on the bike and you think about your three contact points, 
your bottom on the seat, your feet on the pedals, your hands on the handlebar. Your hip mobility influences those. Right? So as your as your seat goes up, naturally, if you keep your handlebar in the same position, well now your trunk has to lean forward. As your seat goes up, your hamstring has to extend a little bit more to reach the bottom of the pedal. And so, you know, hamstring in particular only has so much length to give. And if that's going to be too short, you're going to have trouble doing one of those two things, either reaching the bottom of the pedal stroke or reaching the handlebars. And then there's some, some give and take, um, given your seat position. So I think that's, that's one of those things you just have to look at and assess. And, and the more flexible your hamstring is, more aggressive in theory your position on the bike can be now there's other factors core strength factors in here too and other things but just as a starting point understanding that the hip is going to influence both how low you can be on the bike and sort of how high your seat can be at the same time and having a higher seat allows you to engage the extensors um, more so there's uh, some some desirable reasons to have a higher seat sure and um, I would also say that hip mobility gives you a bigger window to work with. And if, if you're fitting yourself or if you're working with a professional fitter, they can um, tweak the variables a, li- a little bit better if you um, don't have so many, so many restrictions, either in um, you know, flexion, um, extension, or even any, like if you have tight adductors and that, that can affect your knee alignment. Mm-hmm. And as soon as you start to introduce uh, um, a lack of mobility, then the fitter has to work a little bit harder and um, you likely have some issues producing the amount of power you want. Yeah. The less flexible you are, the more constraint you have on your position on the bike. That's going to be comfortable and functional for you. And then you're suddenly focusing on something that's comfortable and not focusing on something that's powerful. Correct. And uh, that's why, you know, professional cyclists and you see their time trial positions or you see even some of their road positions, um, they really work on their flexibility because it allows them to get in that powerful position. Um, not, you know, they, they are a little more advanced than just being comfortable on the bike. They're really looking to get all the, um, you know, gains that they can out of their position. And consequently, that powerful position is oftentimes quite aerodynamic as well. It's it's going to be a little bit lower. It tends to be a little bit more drop down to the handlebars and that demands to have the flexibility. So that's just one, I think one key one not to overlook. And it's a very simple one to assess yourself just by, if you were to lay on your back and lift your leg up just one and keep the other leg flat on the ground. Good. If you can get 70 degree angle, that's pretty solid. With a locked knee. Locked knee. Yep. Yep. Locked knee on both sides. And back, you know, back stays flat on the ground. Seven degrees, that's pretty much what you need to be pretty aggressive. You know, a little bit more is better. Again, gives you more to play with. If it's less than 70 degrees, then you're probably, you know, backing off the, the maximum performance of your position on the bike. Uh, and so I think taking that into account now, so that's your sort of hip flexion flexibility. Um, so now there's also hip, you know, so we say, if you think about it in PT lingo, right, that was the muscular hip flexion limiter. Uh, you also have joint limitation going into hip flexion because the femur is going to hit the pelvis, right? Yeah. The ball, the ball and the socket are going to run out of space basically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, with that there, there is an upper limit to that. You 
you know, at some point you just don't have enough space. I would say most people don't run into that on a bike, maybe on a super low time trial fit, or if you have some hip pathology there, um, some of it can be bony chains and you may not be able to affect that. Some of it can be like a soft tissue capsular type thing, or can also be um, glute tightness. Right? If the glute's tight, yeah, it's flexed. Um, it pulls the femur backwards, and yeah. then um, I, I saw an image of this. But when the femur's pulled backwards toward the backside of the body, um, the ang- like the maximal angle that the femur can yeah, just um, the way it squish down, pivots in the ball and socket. It, the, it the pinches of. earlier um, than it normally would. So you have you have that. Now on the on the flip side, on the extension side, we don't really extend our hips all the way when we're cycling. Uh, it's not like running where you have the trailing limb posture and your your limbs actually behind the body. You never really get into that position on a bike. So, or at least you know if you do, it's you like way forward climbing, standing up, like some some odd position that you're only in for. Yeah, a brief I was, moment. I think Phil Guyman said that Michael Woods looked like he was running on the bike, and no, uh, he was a runner. Yeah, so uh, he's an example of someone who really likes to um, kick behind them when they stand up. Yeah, but it's pretty rare that you truly achieve uh, any reasonable amount of hip flexion or hip extension, excuse me, while you're pedaling. Mm-hmm. And this bike's not set up for that, and as such, cyclists tend to have tighter hip flexors than most. And well, our society, we tend to sit around in desks all day and do our jobs too. That probably didn't help us. Sure. So you go and sit for eight or 10 hours a day at your job and then you go ride your bike for another two. Um, so it's you're just the whole day. In, of, yeah. You're um, just in hip, hip, hip flexion, flexion all day long. And I, I think another thing, um, it's not just hip flexion and hip extension. I think that it's important to look at all six um, oh, different yeah. ways your hip can move and if you are having issues uh, or you feel like, like uh, Peter Sagan uh, before he got really good, I mean, he was, I mean, okay, fine. He was still very good, but not or he was a multiple time world champion. Yeah. yeah. He said he could, he didn't feel like he could get the power out of the bike at the end of races. And, and then he did a crazy, you know, he started uh, putting pictures or videos of him doing splits on mm-hmm. Instagram. And then, you know, then he won three world championships. So you know, so what you're saying is if I can do the splits, I can win world championships? Um, I mean, one of many variables. Okay. Yeah. All right. So I think that uh, looking at your external and internal rotations and just sit in a chair and kick your foot out to the side and see how far it goes. And I think there are um, defined metrics for like, this is what we expect out mm-hmm. of a sedentary person. This is what we expect out of an athlete. And um, Todd already said for the straight leg uh, flexion, you're looking at 70 degrees mm-hmm. from the ground, which um, that's, you know, it's doable. I think a lot of people are closer to 30 or 40. Yeah, you, get, you get, see a lot of 45 or less, I'll tell you that much. Mm-hmm. I, I think that actually I improved a lot. I'm close to 70, maybe maybe even a, a bit better than 70, but I got that from a lot of glute stretching actually mm-hmm. um, because that um, the flexion is lengthening the hamstrings and the glutes. Yep. So my hamstrings were actually long enough, but I had to get my glutes loose so that mm-hmm. they'd also um, lengthen. So 70 degrees for hip flexion, hip extension, uh, we said – you, know, you don't really need to worry really about that, except um, you need to worry about it in that you need your glutes to function properly. And right. maybe we need a separate podcast on just the glutes. But uh, Absolutely. 
I think that's its own could be its own topic if we wanted to go down that path. So uh, um, yeah, like check the box off for extension if you have good glute function. Right, and I, you know I think the the basic extension we have something that's called a Thomas test that we do in PT. You could if you had a mirror and some creativity, you could probably figure out how to do it yourself. It's a fairly simple simple test to do just lying lying back on the bed or something with your leg dangling over and the idea is basically this you take one leg and you bring it all the way up to your chest and what that does is it sort of locks the pelvis in position and the other leg's leg that you're testing and what you would do is you'd you'd let it hang straight down over the edge of the bed and the idea is you should have your thigh be resting on the bed and your shin should be vertical that's a normal thomas test uh, that's that's actually for the rectus femoris, hip flexor muscle. It crosses the two joints, and then if you actually just want to test more uh, iliopsoas, then you'd have the leg straight and check. But the idea is that your thigh should hit the plinth or the bed that you're lying on without any resistance or pulling the pelvis up, and that's that's considered to be a normal a normal test. Mm-hmm. And I think um, other things that are interesting are like um, the. If your abduction is less than you want, you may notice that your knee drops in at the bottom of the pedal stroke. Um, there's like weird relationships. Like it wouldn't really be limited um, necessarily. Like uh, from a flexibility perspective, you should be able to keep mm-hmm. your knee in line. But it seems that a lot of people who have um, can't abduct their um, hip enough tend to have um, knee movement. Uh, so there are these relationships. Yeah, and I think the other thing is to remember that the, the if you look at the, just the ball and socket, it doesn't move purely just like a perfect spin. There's a little bit of combined motion that happens. So it's like flexion has a little bit of adduction that goes with it and a little bit of rotation that goes with it. And extension is same thing as extension. It's a little bit of... Um, abduction, a little bit of internal rotation that happens like all kind of together. So sure. like it's again, it's in small amounts. And another part is, you know, these muscles don't act in isolation in a planar manner, right? So your uh, adductor magnus, I was really trying to stay away from naming muscles, but adductor magnus, for example, is an adductor primarily. It's a very large adductor muscle. But as, where it's positioned, it also acts as an extensor of the hip. So, like, oh, hey, I'm limited in hip flexion. Well, great, my hamstrings are fine, my my glutes are okay. Well, what about your adductor magnus? That could potentially be tight and restricting you. Um, it's less likely. the The obvious ones are going to be the ones that the prime movers in that plane of motion. But you know, if you check those boxes and there's still a limitation, then joint is a possibility, of course, but also what about these other muscles that are minor contributors to that motion that may be affecting you in some way or another? I think one way to think about it is uh, like a, a tent, like a camping tent. And um, you have all the stakes on the end of ropes. And uh, imagine if one, you know, like this tent is made to move. Uh, and so the ropes will all lengthen, like they're more mm. like springs than ropes. But one is an actual rope that won't flex. And it really limits where this tent can move. And uh, if you have this, uh, you know, adductor magnus tightness, you've now uh, forced your body to, you know, it's inhibited and it will only lengthen as far as the adductor magnus will let it. And Mm -hmm. although it's not in the primary plane of action, it'll affect this 
you know, it, it'll affect, you know, your flexion. And it's like, well, this is, this is an adductor. Um, and it's like, yeah, but it's so stiff that it's affecting uh, this other plane of motion. And this is really common on cyclists. And I believe it's common because um, the knee has so much freedom throughout the pedal stroke that we need to stabilize it ourselves. And so we use a lot of different muscles to try and stabilize the knee. And if your body, for whatever reason, chooses to use a smaller muscle or um, you know, less of a major muscle, it'll um, get really tight and fatigued. And then that can start to limit you and other planes of motion. And the other part of it is, as a cyclist, you live in the sagittal plane. Everything that's exciting that's happening on your bike, as far as your legs are concerned, is sagittal plane, flexion, extension, flexion, extension across all the joints. And so we don't explore those other ranges of motion very often, like, sure, if you're on a mountain bike and you get into aggressive position, if you're corny on your road bike and you, you really, you know, get it leaned over in a certain way, like, you may explore a little bit of ABA deduction, internal external rotation, but not not in the way that, say, uh, a soccer player goes through different ranges of motion or some other the field sports athletes that have a lot more lateral movement. We don't really have that in cycling. And you could say the same of swimming, distance running, any of those types of sports. It's very much this pure sagittal plane. So you don't you don't have a reason inherently from pedaling to stretch these muscles, except as we're hinting at. Well, yeah, sometimes these muscles actually get in the way, uh, in not in not in their primary motion necessarily because you're not doing that, but sort of because you're not doing their primary motion, they can become stiff and then they actually end up in some ways limiting uh, a secondary motion that they would do. Sure. I guess uh, now that I'm thinking about it, uh, say you're doing your 20 minute power test and your quads and your glutes are smoked, but you know, your adductor or your abductor can uh, apply just a little bit of extension power. Mm -hmm. You're going to try and get that out. And this is all subconscious, but you know, you're just uh, grinding those gears for the last two minutes and you're, you know, you're smashing these little muscles that are not very well trained because you're, uh, you know, an extension and a flexion athlete and they're engaging, but they're not along their primary line of action. So they're, you know, they're trying really hard, but contributing not much. And, yep. um, these muscles are going to get sore and tight because they're not, uh, they're not big. They're not your major movers. And, um, then, you know, before you know it, this is a classic, uh, you know, how many masters riders I've heard say this, it's like, yeah, I've been riding for 30 years. And, you know, last year I had a little bit of knee pain and like, now I can barely ride and, you know, I might have to give up cycling and, um, you know, yeah, I'm starting to see a PT and, this is all, you know, engagement of these little muscles and, uh, there, uh, it can come out of nowhere, but staying on top of maintaining your mobility is a good way to stave off this effect. Yeah. I think that's the key is that we don't get too terribly focused on just biking. Yes. You need to ride your bike to become a better bike rider. That's somewhat obvious i think and as we point out to this before you need to ride your bike with some intention to become a better bike rider not just riding to ride i mean that's great if you enjoy riding to ride that's fantastic i you know would keep keep doing it but if your objective we are the performance cycling right, if your objective is to optimize performance then there needs to be some intentionality around it and as i hinted earlier like well you know, the, the reality is for most of us doing splits is not going to make us win world championships but 
whether or not we actually end up doing the splits. If we're more flexible, generally speaking, as A, I would venture better for our cycling performance at the end of the day, but I think it's also beneficial for our general overall health since we aren't all going to be professional cyclists and you know at the end of the day i think you don't you don't want to be that master's rise like well gee now i'm not only not riding but you know my my knee hip back whatever is bad it causes me pain in my my day-to-day life and now i'm managing this other thing so thinking thinking beyond the now and actually okay well what can i do to a optimize for my performance but also optimize my movement long term and simple stretching is i think one of these things that's good for both you get you get a lot of value out of it. it extends beyond your cycling when you when you get off the bike your body's probably gonna be happier yep so let's run through stretches real quick we have a separate stretching uh, episode but uh, so for flexion you want to so to improve your ability to flex the hip Yep. So to bring your knee to your chest, you want to stretch your hamstrings yeah. and your glutes mostly. Yeah. Although glutes is more about the knee to chest when the knee's bent and the leg's straight, that's more about your hamstrings. Yep. Because the hamstring crosses the knee and the glute doesn't. Um, so for adductors, there's there's two things I like. I know we've talked a lot about butterfly and, and variations of that. And then I, I like the a variation of an adductor stretch that starts from a quadruped position. So you're on hands and knees, and then the leg you want to stretch, you kick it straight out to the side and sort of rest on your arch. And then from that position, you rock your hips back, and that gives you a pretty good stretch. Yeah, and it's single leg. It's just one at a time. Yeah, yeah not butterfly you get to do two for one, but this one's a, a single leg deal. And so you're basically planting your foot and then pushing your hips into the ground. Yep, yeah. Well, yeah, back and down. Yep. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a pretty good one. I, I remember you showing me that. And um, so, so okay, so that's that's adduction. That's, a, that's adduction. We're gonna work our way all the way around. Yep, abduction. Uh, is there a good abduction stretch? That's a tough one to stretch. I, I think you end up stretching abduction and external rotation together in some form. Well, so what's the one where you cross your legs over each other and then um, you know kick the hip out? Theoretically, abduction. That should. That's like your TFL. A lot yeah. and um also your glute med yep so i, I like that one I, I do find that a number of folks have trouble getting that like feeling a good a good stretch yep. there yeah it's uh hard to get your, like so that's the thing about like the your, quad stretch is you can grab that ankle and you can use your whole upper body to really squeeze you know and pull that muscle something like the abductor stretch and i guess we don't have a name for it but the one we just described you don't have a lot of opposing muscles to use to really push that hip out yeah you have you have some body weight you have the ability to lean a little bit mm-hmm. uh, but beyond that I've, you know i've seen ways where people do like um grab a door frame and get a little bit more lean going okay. on this get some counter pressure but uh, like we've we said in our previous podcast make sure you're you feel it in the muscle that you're right. trying the, to stretch yes yeah because if you don't you're either sufficiently flexible or you're not doing it right yep and uh you know some like for example this side stretch you could do your tfl you could also do your glute med they mm-hmm. are on opposite sides of the hip but if you every time you do it you only do your glute med then your TFL is not getting any of the value of stretching. Right. And, right. Uh, you have to make sure that you know you're getting both, or you're getting one at a time. Uh, but really focusing that this is the mindful practice portion. Yeah, and it, you know I think at some point your ability to stretch abduction is limited by the fact that you're sort of running into the midline of your body. 
you just can't go that yeah much and further. your leg has to go either in front or behind, behind the other leg right so there's some just inherent limitation mm-hmm. there um so pigeon pose for glutes is really yeah, good yep i like that uh, i also like something i think similar to pigeon pose again from quadruped but you would put so you kind of cross your knees so one one leg one knee in front of the other so instead of being directly beneath the hips one um and then extend one leg and again sit back into that position okay uh, i don't know i feel like this is a picture picture of a thousand yeah, we'll words have to on that include one. that uh that picture it's it looks very similar to pigeon pose except the one leg's not extended and it's not curled underneath you okay uh, so uh, I think with pigeon, the way that you get your external rotators and, um, I like to, you know, get into the regular pigeon pose and then you rotate your upper body, you know, to the left, rotate it to the right, move mm-hmm. it all around. And what you're doing is you're flexing your hip and then you're moving, you know, you're going into internal and external rotation. Mm-hmm. You can get those other muscles, but, um, you know, start in pigeon and then, uh, rotate to the left a bit, to, to the right a bit. And. I like to sort of move around in the socket and, and get the body used to being in flexion and um, trying to just engage because there's a lot of muscles back there, actually. Mm-hmm. A lot of very small muscles. And uh, just trying to get each of them to you know say, hey, you exist, and hey, let's pull pull on you a little bit. And you know, I think at the end of the day, with that, as we said, with other stretches, you want to make sure you're feeling it where you're intended to feel it. And there are a lot of little muscles back there. So you you may find as you move around through this position and you do some variation off the standard pose that like, oh, whoa, that's really tight right there. That's probably a good cue to you as maybe I should hang out here a little bit longer. I mean, like, oh, whoa, that's super restricted. And like, oh, let me try the other side. Hey, that moves pretty freely when I go into that angle of motion. That's interesting. Let me spend more time on the other side stretching in this particular angle or you know this this particular load on that that muscle yep and then for extension you know you can like talk about this thomas test you can actually stretch from that position if you're sufficiently stiff and gravity pulls you down but the standard one is the called proposal position kneeling hip flexor stretch so like 90 90 yep and I think it's super important to make sure that your pelvis is in a good position. So you're not, uh, particularly not in uh, anterior pelvic tilt because mm-hmm. your anterior pelvic tilt, your hip flexor is relatively shortened. So that defeats the purpose of trying to stretch it. You want to make sure you're neutral or maybe in a touch posterior pelvic tilted. I like to think of like sort of um, tucking your butt under you. Yeah. That's a good way to get. Um, and you don't really want to do uh, the like forward. It's not lean. the line. Like, yeah. If you're quite flexible, the forward leaning part may yield stretching. I would venture for 85% or more of cyclists. They don't need to do any, they get their hip to 90, 90 and their pelvis in the right position. Probably going to stretch. What's really interesting is if you start in 90, 90, and so the one muscle, the psoas, connects mm-hmm. from your lower spine to the front inside of mm-hmm. your femur. And if you start at 90-90 and you slowly push into the lunge, you notice a lot of people's lower backs uh, go into extension. And yep. basically the, the psoas doesn't change length. You just change everything around it. Right. The psoas is pulling the spine forward mm-hmm. to 
compensate. Yep. And so I think a lot of times when people lunge forward like that, they they're not getting any better stretch. They're just pulling the other end mm-hmm. of the muscle closer. And so uh, I think 90-90 is generally the best. And then focusing on tucking um, the butt under and then pushing your lower back away well, from you. Yeah. Well, for like relatively like you're thinking about think, pushing like so that tuck and then think about pushing my pelvis, like my belt buckle forward a bit. Mm-hmm. And that. That's sort of what I think about when I'm trying to do that. And I think we didn't talk about this exactly, but why should we stretch our hip flexors? I I think that it's important to realize that although we won't be in extension on the bike, we need our hip flexors to function properly. And when they're the correct length, even if they're shortened the entire time you're working out, if they don't, if there's no scar tissue, if there's no um, excessive tightness and they, they're able to fire properly, you'll get more value out of them. So it's important to stretch them. Even if they don't need to be longer, they need to function properly. And just remember that your psoas is attached to your spine. And so if that's short, then it's going to pull your spine into a suboptimal position. Spine's attached to the pelvis. This is all, this is all connected. So just because you're not going to full hip extension doesn't mean short hip flexors may not impact your performance, right? It may put you in way more of an anterior tilt than is ideal. And now your glutes don't fire appropriately. And there's repercussions from having hip flexors too short that don't have to do anything with a trailing limb posture and getting into full extension. Yeah. And I mean, we're back into a sort of Peter Sagan realm, which is, you know, yeah, he doesn't need to do a split, but he's, that's certainly not a limiter. And, Mm -hmm. you know, you can, there are people who are less flexible and, you know, well, I don't need to be flexible here. And it's like, it's not going to hurt. And, you know, it may really help. I feel like I probably said this during the flexibility episode. But if you crash, having a little bit of flexibility ain't going to hurt you. That's true. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. Should joints, limbs go all over the place when you crash. So if it's a little more flexible. That's probably not a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And it's also an opportunity to. Um, one thing that getting a coach is good is they actually get you off the bike. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that stretching and working on your hip mobility is a way to get off the bike more, which I think is valuable for a lot of people who think they, they have this overwhelming urge to continue to ride. I won't have fitness unless I ride more and more. And realizing that instead of riding again, you can take the evening off and do in half an hour, an hour of um, hip mobility work. Mm-hmm. And you're still gaining value, but you're also getting value from actually recovering. And I also think there's a nice part about, I'm call it body awareness, perhaps, when you do stretching, just to understand, okay, this is what this feels like, this is what this position feels like, and not to have the distraction of being on your bike and pedaling in motion, and to really think about that. And then, then apply some of those things when you're on the bike, think about, Okay, this is what my spine is and it's in a good posture and my hip is extended or flexed or this or that to then translate that onto the bike so that you know when you're fit and you're in a good position you can just have that awareness of like, yeah my body's in the spot that it's it's optimal that's that's good for me to produce power yep so that's uh that's hip mobility um i think that a lot of this I guess I can get on my soapbox now of, uh, you know, everyone says, well, you know, I just want to ride my bike or well this, and I'm flexible because I stretch X, you know, X times a week or, um, you know, at the end of the day, there are tests and, you know, if you don't pass the tests, you're not flexible. Like, uh, 
and and if you're not flexible, uh, that's an area of improvement that you can get value out of. And if you're a casual rider, if you're not looking for performance, you could probably get away with it. I say yes and yes and no, right? I think I go back to my earlier point of there's things you can do to improve your cycling performance, and there's things you can do to you know, improve your overall health and well-being that may also improve your cycling performance. And I would definitely put stretching in the latter category for basically you know every cyclist who's not a former gymnast or uh, mm-hmm. competitive diver, right? Like for the rest of us, it's probably important to stretch, especially given the way we operate today. We're, we're so sedentary. Um, chances are you spent most of your day at work sitting. So yeah. you you didn't really extend your hips at all. Uh, so I think there's, there's that consideration too. And so I think for me, it's even a, a layer deeper beyond the, well, this is going to help you perform better on the bike and, you know, meet your performance goals on the bike. It's going to just help your overall health and well-being beyond whatever performance you can get on the now bike. Now I need to convince people that their overall health and well-being <laughs> is important. Well, that's a, that's a public health challenge. Yeah, maybe that's uh, beyond it's the a, topic. Be, beyond our <laughs> podcast abilities at this state. So, all right, uh, that's Hip Mobility. Uh, if you liked, please share with your friends. Uh, give us a review. Uh, give us a follow, a like, whatever. Uh, smash that, whatever button. Wh- whatever, that, whatever the social currency is these days. Yeah, and uh, yeah, hope you enjoyed it, Todd, uh, as you always say. Until next time, keep the rubber side down.